are in Job chapter 29. And what I intend to do tonight is get through the next three chapters, which will be the end of Job's discourse until he starts talking to God, and then we'll get to Elihu the next time. And of course, Elihu has not spoken up yet. So that will be his first speech. The way my particular translation of the Bible labels this section is Job's summary defense, which is probably accurate. Another way to look at it is this first part of it, chapter 29, is the definition of a righteous man. So Job will go through and talk about how he was and what he did before he got smacked by Satan. And you can read that as a description of the righteous Eastern ruler. Mostly it's very straightforward, and I'll probably go through that pretty quick. Then he'll talk about his current situation, and then he'll summarize in 31. So Job chapter 29. And Job took up his discourse and said, and I explained what that was last time or a time ago. That phrase also shows up in Numbers when Balaam is called down to curse Israel by Moab. And each attempt of his to curse Israel starts off with, and Balaam took up his discourse and said. And of course, the underlying word there is Marshall, which I've also explained in the past. So, and Job took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. So, obviously this is a lament for his situation before the beginning of the book of Job. And his idea here is, the days when God watched over me, when his lamp, God's lamp, shone upon my head, and by his light, God's light, I walked through darkness. So what he's saying is, I walked according to the light shone on me by God. For those of you who are biblically literate, remember thy word is a lamp unto my feet. That's very much the sense here, that he walked as he understood God's guidance. So, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by night I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent. So again, I was walking in God's blessing. When the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me. Remember, one of the first things that happened back in Job chapter 2 is he lost all of his children. So what he's talking about is, God's favor was on my tent. My family was gathered around me. Uh, so in that sense, it's pretty much as good as it gets. Verse 6. When my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. I think the metaphor there is obvious, is that he was walking in wealth and the blessings of God that were given to him. Verse 7. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. So going to the gate of the city and a seat in the square indicates that he's a judge. 
and that he is a man of great prominence. And when he showed up, the young people backed out and gave him space. And even the old people rose when he came. And you remember in the Torah, one of the things it says is that when an old man enters, you're supposed to rise in deference to the aged. And what he's saying is the aged rose in deference to me, and indicating the esteem in which he was held. Nine, the princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouths. So he's a judge, he's a prominent man, and other leaders deferred to him. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help them. God's poster children for the defenseless are the poor, the stranger, the widow, and the orphan. So what he's going to do is he's going to go through here, and he's going to explain how he treated those people, which is why I say it's a listing, if you will, of the criteria for being a righteous man. So verse 11 again. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. And the one who's about to perish is obviously someone who is in the last part of his life. And one of the things that happens, especially prevalent in our society right now, is preying on people at the end of their lives. They are vulnerable. They're often in pain. They are not able to make really good decisions. And it is a major industry taking advantage of people at that stage in their lives. And what he's saying is, not only did I not do that, I guarded and defended such people so that as they were expiring, they blessed me for the way they were treated under my hand. Verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I think that's pretty obvious. Blind can't see, so somebody serves as their eyes. And same with feet to the lame. Remember, it says back in the Torah, at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, there are the curses is all these folks. And all of those are secret sins, which is to say they are sins committed not in public. So one of those is putting a stumbling block before the blind. The thing about the blind is they can't see the stumbling block, and they can't see the one who put it in front of them. So it's a very easy thing to put a stumbling block before the blind and then run up to them and offer your help. And what he's saying is, I was eyes to the blind. I helped them, as opposed to putting a stumbling block in front of them. 16. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. And the needy, in this case, either the poor or the fatherless, and searching out the cause of him whom I did not know talks of the stranger. Going through our poster children for defenseless, if you will, I think we've pretty much got them all here. Verse 17, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous 
and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Love that image. The unrighteous are preying on people and have them in their teeth, and he would break their teeth and make them drop their prey. This is some of the best poetry in human language. So I am down to verse 18. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters, with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. As he is in his prime, and he is honored by everybody, and he is working hard to do what God would have him to do, and he is, as he's saying, he's doing everything that a righteous man would do, he assumed then that his life would continue to go well. And remember, one of the things that's happening with his three accusers is they are all making the same assumptions. So what they're saying is, your life is turned to crap. That doesn't happen to righteous people. And because your life has turned to crap on you, that must mean that you have some secret unrighteousness that nobody knows about, but God sees and he has taken care of you. Okay, that's the assumption. So from Job's perspective, as he is remembering his previous status, what he's saying is, given my life, I thought I was going to have a good life, surrounded by my family and children, honored by my community, and I was going to die at a ripe old age in my own bed. So he's saying, my attitude was the same as what my accuser's attitude is. Verse 20, my glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. I think what that means, and it shows up twice in scripture that I know of, Genesis, where Jacob is blessing his sons before his death. So I'm in Genesis 49:22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So the other reference, if you will, to a bow in the light of blessing is back there in Genesis 49. What I think that means, and this is a guess, but I am assuming it has to do with children. Because remember it says that children are like arrows in a quiver. So the idea of my glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand, I am thinking probably refers to reproduction in children. But that's a guess. Back in Job 21. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again. And my word dropped upon them. So what he's saying is, once I had spoken, there wasn't anything left to say. And that's an indication of his wisdom. So we have now a recitation of his righteousness, a recitation of the honor with which he was held within the community, and now we have a recitation of what a wise man he was. Verse 23, they waited for me as for the rain. And they opened their mouths as for spring rain. In other words, my words were so wise 
that people waited on my words because they were so beneficial and valuable to them. Let's pick it up at 23 again and get a run at 24. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. Not only did he give them wisdom in his speech, wisdom that was not only just wise but useful, furthermore, he gave them confidence. He gave them encouragement. It's 25. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. So we're talking about his prominence and the, and the idea that he is a righteous man. He is one who gives comfort to those who mourn. Everything here in this chapter 29 is a recitation of a righteous man of the East. Righteous, wise, powerful, good, greatly admired. All those things are summed up in that chapter. And quite frankly, all of us could do well to emulate it. And it's, it's good stuff. So now, down to chapter 30. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose father I would have disdained to set among the dogs of my flock. So the first thing, of course, is wisdom and age are correlated. And a young man doesn't laugh at an older man. So the idea that these are young men who are laughing at him is doubly insulting. Furthermore, these are people who have no family lineage that is anything to be proud of. I wouldn't take their dads and put them among the dogs of the flock. And I don't know whether that means I wouldn't use them as shepherds or I wouldn't put them in my kennels. I just don't know how you're supposed to read that one. But it's not a compliment. So now we're still talking about those that laugh at him, younger men. So now verse 2. What would I gain from the strength of their hands? Men whose vigor is gone, in other words, people who are used up. Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick saltwort and the leaves of bushes and roots of the broom tree for their food. You know, these guys that I wouldn't even put among my dogs, he's saying these are worthless people. They have no vigor. They have no strength. They are not economically useful. They are living like animals out there grazing on whatever they can find for food. Verse 5. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as a, after a thief. I don't know what kind of people these are. Because remember, before he has talked about the way he treats the poor and the defenseless. I get the idea that these people are not just poor. They are, in fact, certainly petty criminals. These are not the righteous poor. In the biblical economy, begging is an honorable profession. Not a desirable profession, but it's honest work. To sit on the corner and beg is not something that is unrighteous. And as I say, it's not something that's, that's desirable. It's not something you want your kids to do. But it isn't the same as being some kind of a criminal. These are outcasts. And so what I'm assuming is these are not just beggars. These are what I would call petty criminals, you know, the people that stand around on the street corners dealing drugs. You know the type. They are not the righteous poor. 
question was, what about instead of being petty criminals, lack of wisdom or fools? And I'm sure most of you know, there are three kinds of fools in the Bible. There's a Nabal, which is the young fool. And everybody goes through that. You're just a fool because you don't have any experience and you haven't lived long enough to accumulate any wisdom, so you do dumb stuff. Teenage boys, up to maybe 25 or so, they just do stupid stuff. And they are young fools, and that can be educated or beaten out of them. The next level is a mocking fool, which is to say, one who mocks the wise. And there we're starting to get to hopeless. And then the final is a hardened fool. And for a hardened fool, the Bible offers no hope. By the time you reach hardened fool, as far as the Bible's concerned, you're human debris and there's no hope for you anymore. So these could be aspiring mocking fools or aspiring hardened fools, certainly possible. Verse 5. So we're still talking about these people who are worthless. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and in the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together. A senseless, nameless brood, they have been whipped out of the land. So these are not the honorable poor who are simply beggars. These are people who are, I don't know that they're doing any great evil, but You don't want them around your community. Verse 9. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. So these utterly worthless people are now taking encouragement because Job has been laid low. It's schadenfreude. Happiness at somebody else's misfortune. Verse 10. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. In other words, these are people in my former state who would not even have been in my shadow. They would have stayed way away from me because I was righteous. Now, they have cast off all restraint in my presence. They mock me. They have no problem whatsoever coming up to me. They have no trouble speaking to me and all those kinds of things, all of which they would not have dared to do before. Verse 12. On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. They are making my situation worse, but... My situation is already so bad that the extra stuff that they're doing to me doesn't make it that much worse than what's already happening. Verse 14, as through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. So they're like waves coming through the breach in a seawall. All these people who used to be respectfully afraid of him, now he's overcome by them. 15. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. All of the things that used to defend me, my honor, my wealth, 
my position have all been taken away from me and I have no more defense against people like this. 16. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. I think verse 18 is also a metaphor. You remember in, in the New Testament where Paul talks about death as putting off a garment? So the garment there is the garment of flesh, the fleshly garment that we are wearing. So I think that's what's being said there. So with great force, my garment is disfigured, which is to say my flesh is disfigured by what has happened to me. And it binds me about like the collar of my tunic. Well, what's the thing that he has hoped for since the beginning of the book? He's hoped for death. He wants to die. He says, everybody's going to die eventually. Where I am right now, that's all I've got to look forward to. And so the idea of his garment being disfigured and the garment binding him like the collar of a tunic, which is to say, I really don't want to be in this garment anymore. I think that's what that may be saying. Verse 19, God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. This, I believe, is speaking to God. So you, in this case, is God. So I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up in the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death, and to the house appointed for all living. So obviously he said, right now I am being persecuted, I am being humbled, I am being chastised, but I know at the end I'm going the same place where all living people goes. I'm going to my death. 24. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins, stretch out his hand, and in his disaster cry for help. So what he's saying there is, I am in my house. We've just had an earthquake. And I am sticking my hand out of the rubble, and I am asking for help. So does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hands, and in his disaster cry for help? Do I not weep for him whose day is hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. So when I had the power to do so, I helped those who were stretching out their hands for help. Yet when it's my turn to stretch out my hand for help, I don't get an answer. This is the depths of despair and depression. Even I, a human being, if I saw somebody's hand reaching out from the rubble, I would try and help. But nobody will try and help me. I am asking for what anybody would regard as the smallest of human mercies, and you are denying it to me. So 26 again. But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. Darkened is tanned. 
And depending on what culture you're in, that can either be a sign of being really healthy. In our culture, it's a sign of being healthy. In Eastern cultures, it is a sign of being a common laborer because higher class people don't go out and get suntans. Only somebody who is a lower class person and working out in the fields or something gets a suntan. But what he's saying is, the tan on me is not from the sun, it's from grime. I am living in dust and ashes, and I look like I'm suntanned, but I'm not. This is filth that is on me. 29. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. Jackals and ostriches are a metaphor for animals that live in the wilderness and are untamed, and they're wild animals that are out there living in the weather. That's what he is saying. I'm like a wild animal living in the weather. 30. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is tuned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. This is amazing poetry. Uh, it is really good. Chapter 31. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then would I gaze at a virgin? What he's saying is, I have not lusted in secret. Verse 2. What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? So again, what he's saying is, not only have I done righteous in public, I have done righteous in my heart. I've made a covenant with my eyes. So my actions in public have been righteous. My heart is pure. And what should be my portion from God under those circumstances? And does he not see and number all my steps? In other words, doesn't God know what's going on? Parentheses, of course, the answer is, of course he does. Job understands of course God understands what's going on. Five, if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Let what grows for me be rooted out. So what he's saying is, my heart going after my eyes. One of the things we said on Shabbat is the eyes are the sense that lead you astray. Remember in Genesis 3 that Eve looked upon the fruit, saw that it was desirable. It's all entirely visual. So when you see the eyes being the dominant sense, what you know is that somebody is about to go astray. And what Job is saying here is, my heart did not follow my eyes. And furthermore, I have not done deceit or falsehood, and I want to be weighed in a just balance. If any of what I'm saying is wrong, if any of what I'm saying is not true, then let me sow, let me plant, and somebody else eat my crop. And let what grows for me be rooted out, which is to say, let my labor be in vain. Nine, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait 
at my neighbor's door. Then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. So let my wife grind for another. One of the things my dear wife does every Friday is she grinds wheat to make bread. So she grinds wheat to make bread and mixes it up with the sourdough starter and all that kind of stuff. So let my wife grind for another is let my wife make bread for somebody else and let another bow down on her means obviously uh, take her sexually. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as a badman and it would burn to the root of my increase. Remember this all started with, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I have not engaged in secret sexual sin. And he said, furthermore, if I had, that would be terrible and would be worthy of punishment and the fire would consume as far as Abaddon. Abaddon is the archangel of hell. 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? These are all secret sins. Remember, we talked about the secret sins at Evol and Gerizim. These are all secret sins. And you remember in the New Testament, Yeshua says, if when the master leaves, the head of the house mistreats the other servants and eats and drinks and wastes the master's goods, then when the master finally comes back, it's going to really be bad. What this guy is saying is, I have power over my servants. I can do anything I want with my servants, and they can't do anything about it. So in that sense, it's a secret sin. But he's also saying, God made them just like he made me. And I have, in fact, not mistreated my servants. 16. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, If I eat my morsel alone, remember we just got through the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And the whole idea there was Lazarus was dumped off at the rich man's gate and desired nothing more than the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. The rich man, however, said, he ain't mine, and didn't give him anything. So what Job is saying here is, I did not eat my morsel alone. In other words, I didn't eat my food all by myself. I, in fact, did feed the poor with my own food. 21. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate. What that means is I was a judge. I was someone who had political power. I was able to use that power against the helpless if I had so chosen. And I did not. 22. Then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. So this is, if I forget the O Jerusalem at my right hand, it's cunning lose kind of thing. It's a metaphor. And what he's saying is, if I had done any of that stuff, 
I would have been in terror before God. I would not have been able to stand before him. 24. If I have made gold my trust, we've talked about sexual sins, we've talked about power, now we're going to talk about wealth. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked on the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. So what he's saying is, if I had trusted in my wealth, if that were the case, then what's happening to me would be just, because I would have been false to God. So he's saying, I did not trust in my wealth. 29. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? All right, so the first one is schadenfreude, which is to say joy at the misfortune of someone else. But what he's saying is he has not rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated it. Mine is done with parentheses. So you have a statement and then a parenthetical here. The statement is, if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, and then parenthesis, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. So then, the next thing, if the men of my tent have not said, who is there who has not been filled with his meat? Parenthesis, the sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. So what he's saying is, nobody has said that I am stingy and that I am not hospitable because I have been hospitable. 33. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I stood in great fear of the multitude, and the contempt of families terrified me, so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors, oh, that I had one to hear me. Parenthesis. He is my signature, let the Almighty answer me. So what he's saying here is, I am not someone who has sinned in secret and then covered it up. And I'm saying that as a pledge. Here's my signature. I'm attesting to the fact that I have not been guilty of secret sins that I have covered up. And then let the Almighty answer me. So 35 and two-thirds. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. What I really want here is the indictment that God has got against me that has caused him to treat me this way. I do not understand what the problem is here. 38. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. Now, this is a couple of things. First thing that God says to Cain after Abel's death is, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now let's look at this last thing again. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, 
If I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last. If my land cried out against me, which is to say I have shed innocent blood in obtaining this land, and so the land cries out against me, then let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. If that's what's happened to me, as with Cain, remember what, what was Cain's curse? The ground will not yield its strength to you anymore, remember? And so what this is, is harking back to Genesis and the conversation between God and Cain. And then, finally, the words of Job are ended. So he has made his defense. And it is beautifully written, beautiful poetry, and it cries out of absolute despair. And Job is... No idea what's happened to him. No idea why it's happened to him. And he has reached out his hand from the rubble, expecting that somebody would take his hand and try and save him, and nobody will, not even God. That's a total despair. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.